recording. So this morning I am going to uh, I'm going to read you the text from Romans 8 verses 6 through 11. I'm going to read it a few times and I'm going to tell you right off the bat that if you have a problem with creative interpretation and imagination surrounding text, <laughs> sacred text, you may want to move right on because just just keep scrolling because I'm going to be um, taking some liberties. Um, so the, the text for today is Romans 8 verses 6 through 11. I invite you to go back and read the rest of the lectionary. It's very beautiful. Ezekiel 37 is in it. That's the valley of where Ezekiel um, prophesies to the dry bones. And uh, some very beautiful passages invite you to go back and read the entire lectionary. I don't have time because I'm going to read Romans 8, this passage, about three times in this section. It's going to be like a mini Lectio Divina. But I'll tell you, when I read this passage um, this week with sort of my freshest eyes on it, my first response was like, I don't like it. Uh Uh-uh. St. Peter, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and you can go home. And this happens to me sometimes. I have a regular practice of sitting with the text. And what works the best for me, I find, is to just allow myself to feel my feelings about the text. Sometimes it's like, you know, a beloved friend or sibling who you love, but just sometimes you want to punch them in the face. You know, like sometimes they just get on your nerves And I just think it's okay. So I've learned that when I feel that feeling about the text, when I just want to pinch St. Paul's head right off, it's often an invitation for me to go a little bit deeper into my curiosity about what's happening here. So the thing that I take a bit of issue with in this text is the way the word flesh is translated here. And I don't like it because I think that the way it's The way it's translated and the way we've interpreted it has helped to create and artificially prop up a duality that has plagued us in Western Christianity for centuries. And that is this Gnostic idea that the body and the spirit are separate and they oppose one another and that the spirit is, you know, better than or more holy than the body. And I think this is bad because it gives weight to this dualistic theology theological idea, this theology, which again, I disagree with, and it paves the way for what I think, um, I think it paves the way for body shaming, the shaming and marginalization of the feminine, of hierarchies of all kinds, and general self-hatred for millions of people. <clears throat> because I believe that all those things are contrary to the good news that, are, that was preached by Christ, which is the kingdom is here now, kingdom is within you, even within your body. And in fact, the body is so worthy as to be incarnated by Christ himself. I think it's worth going in and doing some creative work with this passage and perhaps letting it springboard us into a deeper understanding of wholeness and oneness. And I think creative reimagining is a really a muscle we need to work in these times. So here's my first pass reading of Romans 8 verses 6 through 11. I'm reading it straight out of the NRSV and I'm reading it just like it's written. I'm even, I'm even keeping the, uh, the masculine pronouns in reference to the divine. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay. To set the mind on the flesh is death. 
But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. All right. So the word there that's translated, let me just check in on y'all there. Okay. The word that is translated there as flesh in the Greek. Okay. I got curious. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I got curious. In the Greek is sarki or sarks. And its usage, according to Strong's, is flesh, body, human nature, materiality, kindred. I take that to mean uh, family of origin. So that definition of human nature and materiality feels a little closer to me than flesh, to, to what I imagine from my modern perspective that St. Paul means. So like thinking about material possessions and human drives. And if I dig a little deeper, I might ask, well, what are those human drives? And what are those parts of human nature that might be problematic? And we see from the example of all the toilet paper hoarders that a basic drive of human nature is survival and self-preservation. So much of our innate brain function that we've evolved serves to keep us alive. It's our fight of our, our Fear responses, our fight and flight and freeze responses, our panic, anxiety responses, and so forth. And we've seen a lot of human nature um, in survival or self-preservation mode here these days. And that's because we are hardwired biologically to want to survive. And those impulses have served us very well as a species. There are 8 billion almost of us now. And right now... That instinct is playing out really hard, which is not all bad, but it can be cumbersome, like a cumbersome instinct when we're trying to live in community and oneness with others and when we're trying to live out kingdom values. So I want to read the text again uh, with some sort of creative wordplay, I guess. So this time I want to read the passage and in the place of, quote, in the flesh, I want to substitute the words, um, survival or self-preservation. So take another listen again as I read it in this from this perspective of, of translating sarks or sarki in a different way. Here we go. To set the mind on self-preservation is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set solely on its own survival is hostile to God does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are preoccupied with their own self-preservation cannot please God. But if you, but you are not in survival mode. You are in the spirit since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead or the bank account is empty because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So that gives 
the passage in a different spin, doesn't it? It takes us into another uh, mind space. And we, we know that we can't practice selflessness if we can't overcome some of our, at least some of our innate instinct toward self-preservation. We can't be love in the world if we don't want to, if we can't take risks, if survival and self-preservation are our, are our only goals. And this is what leads to, I think, tribalism and to separation and to um, insular thinking and to us versus them and to um, conflicts of all kinds. And I believe that the Apostle Paul is pointing out that we're going to have to let go of some of our drive to survive so that we can live by the Spirit and the risk-taking that is inherent in some of that so that we can work toward the greater good and so that we can put others before ourselves and unclench our fists from control, from trying to control everything. So we need our survival instincts, and they're not bad, but they can keep us from living by Spirit when we're, when we're locked in fear. Okay, let's read it again. And this time I want to substitute the words in the flesh with ego. Uh, Thomas Merton calls, uh, calls the ego the false self. And I dropped a link in the comments there to Father Roars talking about the false self versus the true self and how he interprets Sarks and Sarki than the Greek. Um, Father Roars says that we'd probably be more likely in our modern understanding to translate that word as ego or false self. And I think it gives us another way in. So let's try it. Here we go. To set the mind on the ego is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the ego is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are preoccupied with ego concerns cannot please God. You are not your ego or your false self. You are your true self in the spirit since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead and the ego is given up the ghost, the spirit is life because of righteousness. All right. What does the ego do? The ego tries to keep us safe, which is good, except when we need to be courageous and take risks and then it's a hindrance. The ego tries to prove that we're right. The ego needs to win in any conflict. It needs to preserve our dignity and protect us from humiliation. The ego needs to hoard resources so that it can preserve itself and its lifestyle. And I'm telling you guys, entire wars have been fought on this planet and in our own country in the name of preserving a way of life. The ego prefers safety over service and it's resistant to change and it tends to insist that it is alone in the world and unconnected to other beings. By contrast, the spirit is unendingly inviting us into connectedness, into oneness, into wholeness, and the spirit gives generously and works with what's available. The spirit spurs us to love and service. The spirit of God dwelling within us redeems every bad opinion we ever had about our bodies or about our flesh or about other people's bodies or other people's flesh. The Spirit pulls us from a limited perspective of scarcity and separation 
into an unlimited perspective of abundance and interconnectedness. The spirit can pull us out of our ego if we let it because the ego is fear-driven and the spirit is love-driven. So let me reiterate to you because I'm not in the business of creating more dualities. Just as the body or the flesh is not bad, the ego is not bad. Your survival instinct is not bad. The ego serves us. The flesh serves us. The survival instinct serves us. We have to learn to quit serving it, which doesn't mean disregarding it or denying it care and nourishment. We have to learn to quit serving it and serve spirit instead. We have to learn to accept the ego as a necessary and God-given part of ourselves, same as the body. And just as we train and discipline our bodies in various ways, some of which are by nurturing and care, we learn to observe the ego so that the spirit can override it in moments like these that we're in right now. So that the spirit can be in the driver's seat of our lives and we learn to train and discipline our spiritual capacities via what? Spiritual practice. I know. I'm saying it again. So that our spiritual capacities are strong. I liken it to this. Okay? If I'm standing on the ground floor of my ego, I can only see out so far. I can only see so far toward the horizon. But if I climb onto a a ladder or a high hill, I can see much farther from that vantage point, from the vantage point of spirit. My previous perspective on the ground floor of my ego was not wrong. It was only limited. So, what we have an opportunity to learn both from this passage and from this moment that we are all in this freaking first time living through is to observe and notice when we are slipping out of spirit life and into flesh, ego, survival, self-preservation mode. And we take pains to observe this because we know that noticing and naming things changes them. Noticing and naming things takes away their power to rule us. And learning to notice the ego is, my friends, in my opinion, the most important thing we can do to learn to become mature Christ followers. It takes humility to even begin to learn to observe the ego. And trust me, your ego does not want to be seen and your self-preservation instinct wants to keep running things behind the scenes. So if you're here in this moment and you find yourself waffling between ego control and spirit living, I bless you for even beginning. I bless every single moment that you are able to observe when your ego is running away with you. This is the work, friends. This is humanity. You're doing it and you're becoming a conscious human, and you're learning to live by spirit, to stay connected to life and abundance and service and love and the kingdom of God that is right here near to us, and you're learning not to let your own ego steamroll your life. And I want to validate that this is hard, nitty-gritty business made much more difficult by the pandemic that we are in and the survival instincts and fear that are rolling strong all around you. But our challenge now is to live by spirit even in this circumstance. Our challenge is 
to resist the messages, the ego messages, even the ones from like federal and state leaders that tell us that, for instance, economic safety is more important than human life. Because we know that the spirit sees every human as beloved and sacred. And we're not going to let our egos keep us from doing what's necessary to care for them. So, I'm done. I've read you all the Romans 8. You can probably handle it at this point. But I'm curious. I would like to hear your stories about how you're doing this. Tell me stories about how you are learning to notice your own ego. My email is open. My DMs are open, both on Facebook and on Instagram. I would love to, to hear your journey of how you are waking up to your ego and choosing to live by spirit. All right, friends. Ooh, I'm just going to scroll down here and check on some comments. Yeah. All right, friends. I love you all. I'm tossing it over to Aurelia. I'm sending you all love. And once again, I'm really curious. Tell me your stories this week. All right. Love y'all. Bye.